0: And actually, I realized it helps to get around a lot of the criticisms of Stoicism, so people think Stoics are unemotional, but if you look at Marcus Aurelius's private letters, he's an incredibly affectionate man, and so you can more easily dispel these misconceptions just by looking at real dudes in history and, and saying, look at this guy, you know, and tell me he's unemotional. <laughs>
1: How's it, everybody, and welcome to the Dad Syndicate Podcast. My name is Thomas Kingwell, and I'm really excited to be with you here again as we continue on our journey to being the most effective fathers we can and being better husbands and just stepping up as men in general. It's no greater thing than being a dad, as far as I'm concerned, and no greater motivation than being a father and a husband to really make yourself live the best life you can. So continue on that journey with me really stoked to have you all of you here if you're new welcome to the dad syndicate and to listening to this podcast and if you've been with us for a while really thank you so much for all the support thank you to all the guys in the facebook group the dad syndicate arena really loving uh, talking and chatting with you guys and hoping it steps up in the in the new year if you haven't joined it yet check it out on facebook the dad syndicate arena really cool guys in there and also check us out on instagram where i'm pretty active and Yeah, show us some support, show us some love, and share this podcast with whoever you can and leave us a rating on Apple iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. Really appreciate that. Today's show, I have a very special guest and very stoked to welcome Donald Robertson. On the podcast. He is the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, and we had an amazingly interesting and fascinating discussion about Marcus Aurelius' life and Stoicism in general. We talked about the foundations of Stoicism, including Socratic philosophy that it was kind of based on, uh, also the fact that it connects it to Christianity. Donald walks us through his own journey to Stoicism and how this philosophy is dovetails so nicely with his job as a cognitive behavioral therapist, and also how it goes together with modern day psychotherapeutic practices. We then delve deeper into Marcus Aurelius' life, starting with early childhood when he lost his father, and then into his teens where he was mentored and tutored by a great deal of teachers and philosophers. We discuss the impact Marcus' adoptive father, Empress Antoninus, had on him in contrast to Hadrian and why the emperor earmarked Marcus as future emperor at such a young age. Donald then breaks down the conundrum that Commodus presented Marcus with regarding succession. And in the end, we talk about how Stoicism can be employed in parenting and helping us to be more effective parents. And especially how the way we use language is very powerful in affecting emotions and attitudes and behaviors. It was a great conversation, but if you want to know more about Donald, go check him out on donaldrobertson.name donaldrobertson.name and get his book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. So, Donald Robinson, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thanks very much for having me along. It's a pleasure.
1: So you are a cognitive behavioral therapist and a trainer and an author. And mm-hmm. um, your latest book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, is about Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism. But I wondered mm-hmm. if you can tell us about your journey to adopting a Stoic philosophy of life, starting from your experience as a young man and a certain piece of paper that you found in your father's wallet.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, this is all in in the kind of introduction to the book. Mm. Just as an aside, I know in the audio version of that book, the introduction's at the end for some strange reason. It's just a bit out of sequence, but it's supposed to be at the start. And uh, really, my editors asked me, the publisher asked me, to to write uh, an introduction where I kind of explain how I became interested in the subject. Otherwise, the original version of the book just started with chapter one and kind of pretty much just launched into the... The story of Marcus Aurelius, but the the publisher wanted me to say something about my own background, and you know, really the the reason that I got into this was um, because my father passed away when I was about thirteen or fourteen, and uh, he he died of lung cancer um, uh, back in Scotland, and he was a Freemason, and and that was um, very common in the town where I lived. It's the home of Robert Burns, the national bard of Scotland, and he was famously a master Freemason. And my my friends' fathers were uh, mostly uh, also Freemasons. And so when my father passed away, he left not much behind. He, he you know, my family were, were pretty uh, uh, of pretty modest means. He worked on building sites and stuff, and uh, he he left behind some books about Freemasonry. So I thought I'd have a look at them. I couldn't make head nor tail of them. There was a lot of Hebrew and some symbolism and stuff and a few references to kind of Pythagoras maybe and Plato and they are like some hints of of Greek philosophy. And, uh, you know, so I started to... I spoke to the local church minister about it and he got me learning a little bit of Hebrew. And I started to read the Bible uh, more closely and he told me which books to look at. And then I I started to read... uh, the Gnostic Gospels and kind of apocryphal uh, early Christian stuff, Christian mysticism. And that got me interested in Neoplatonism because a lot of Christian mysticism is influenced by Neoplatonism. And the, the Gnostic uh, scriptures in particular show the, the influence of early, uh, Neoplatonism and early Christianity. In fact, the, the main corpus of Gnostic books which was found at a place called Nashkamadi in Egypt. I think in the 1940s they found all these books um, which had been lost for uh, you know over a thousand years, buried in the ground uh, by, from early Christian communities and they, they had uh, they were codices, they were books rather than scrolls like and uh, bound alongside these kind of apocryphal Christian gospels. one of the weirdest things about it is that these Christians had included uh, an excerpt from Plato's Republic, so in their version of the Bible, the Socrates weird. How weird is that? So I thought this is weird. <laughs> like Christi, early early Christians have got Socrates in the Bible, and like and they've got this whole chunk of Plato's Republic in there, and then there's this other stuff that's maybe less obvious at first. That's uh, uh, gospels and kind of uh, Christian philosophy or Gnostic philosophy that's, that's influenced more by Neoplatonism than the, the New Testament that we have today. So I ended up going to university and I studied philosophy and I was getting into Buddhism and Hinduism and yoga and all sorts of self-help and psychology. I was into Freud and Jung and all that kind of stuff. And it it was a big mess, you know, and I I couldn't really figure out what I was doing. And so I was at university for four years and I thought, well, I'm glad that I studied philosophy, but I don't really feel that I'm any clearer about what I'm going to do with the rest of my life or or how to kind of make sense out of things. It just seems still a bit of a jumble to me. And so for some reason, I decided to go back and and look at Neoplatonism again and the Gnostics. And I I found a book by a guy called Pierre Hadot called Plotinus, The Simplicity of Vision, and I thought it was excellent, so I decided to read the rest of Hadot's books. He's uh, an eminent French scholar, um, and he, he passed away recently. And his other books talk more about spiritual exercises in Hellenistic philosophy, and it became clear to me that Hado saw the, the main repository of these techniques was Stoic philosophy. There are more psychological techniques in Stoicism than any of the other branches, and what was also odd was that he linked it all to Christianity. He said, look, there was all these spiritual exercises in, uh, in the Stoics, but he, at no point did he ever say that they're psychological exercises of the kind that we would find in psychotherapy. And I was training as a psychotherapist. I thought, this is really weird. Like, I could easily write a book about this and just go through all the spiritual exercises that he lists and say this is how they compare to stuff, stuff that we do in cognitive therapy today. It seemed like it was kind of handed to me on a plate in a way. And I thought this is really easy just to join these dots. It's surprising that he never got around to to making that comparison. And so I felt the penny dropped and everything came together for me. And before I felt like I was kind of juggling at least three separate things. I wanted to do philosophy. I wanted to be a therapist and I wanted to do meditation. And... uh, they were kind of leading me in slightly different directions. It was all a bit fragmentary. And when I discovered the Stoics, they just all seamlessly locked together into one big thing. And I realized the Stoics were the inspiration for modern cognitive therapy. They were actually doing a sort of cognitive therapy themselves. They are doing philosophy in the Socratic tradition. And they also have these kind of contemplative uh, contemplative meditation techniques that uh, Influenced later Christian meditative or contemplative practices, so and are similar to some of the things we find in, in Buddhism and, and other Eastern religions. So it all just came together, and I thought this is great. Now I don't need to read <laughs> as many books, right? I can, just read, I can read books <laughs> in Stoicism, and uh, yeah. you know I don't need to read Freud and Jung and about uh, the Dhammapada and uh, all that the existentialists. I've read too many books. I thought yeah, now I only need to read one lot of authors, uh, <laughs> so I, I could relax. And, and I never looked back. I don't know what was that, like 20, odd, 20 or 30 years ago now. Whatever. I, I don't care to think, but it was several decades ago. And uh, I guess it was over 20 years ago. And so I, you know, now I, you know, I'm still doing the same thing. So it kind of stuck with me.
1: Mm. Well, thanks for doing the legwork for me so that I don't have to go. Because I was wanting to write down some of those books and then I was like, it sounds like you did a lot of reading. And I know that uh, finding Stoicism has been definitely eye-opening for me. And it seems that Christians have a certain aversion to philosophy and Stoicism specifically. I've never yeah. really understood that. I see, I see in your book you said you were struggling to combine Socratic values. Uh-huh. Um And philosophy with um, cognitive behavioral therapy. How come? How come was it a problem to kind of combine what Socrates was saying with CBT? But but on on the other hand, Stoicism kind of just dovetailed nicely with it.
0: Oh well, actually, let me come back to what you said at the beginning there about um, like Christianity and philosophy. Just as an aside, not a lot of people know this. It's a little bit of trivia for you and anyone that's that's interested in Christianity and philosophy. Saint Paul went and spoke to the Stoics in the Acts of the Apostles. They're, they're there as minor characters in the New Testament. Like, so a lot of people don't realize this, but the Stoics are actually mentioned in the New Testament. He puts St Paul goes to the Areopagus and he delivers a sermon there and he, he quotes Aratus, who is a student of Zeno, who is a, a Stoic poet, And he has a debate with the Stoics and Epicurean philosophers, who who some archaeologists believe had a a school situated there. So that's a little bit of a a, a trivia right from the outset. You know, the early Christians were very, um, they were, what would be the expression, frenemies with the Stoics. Mm. They they had a lot in common with the Stoics, but they also argued with them. In the same way that they kind of argued between different Christian sects. (laughs) You know, or what they do today, they, yeah. <laughs> they, some of the church fathers had originally studied Stoicism and trained in it, and then they, ah. they went over to Christianity. So they, they kind of had a love hate relationship with Stoicism, but they certainly knew about it and were happy to engage with it. And they realized they had a lot in common with the Stoics. They were friends with Stoics. Mm. I imagine some of the church fathers would go around saying, so, "Like some of my best friends are Stoics. You know, they, <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't, they, they all knew each other, these guys. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, St. Paul, you know, St. Paul went right there and, and we're told he had a chat with him So Socrates, how did I uh, end up trying to reconcile? I mean, I guess the thing is, look, this is a very odd way of putting it, right? And and you know, don't don't quote me on this, but some some people say, you know, what's the relationship between Socrates and and the Stoics? And yes. my kind of glib answer to that is, the the Stoics are kind of like a bullet point version of Socrates in a way. Now, yeah. like in Socrates, you get these kind of long, elaborate all-round the houses arguments, which I love, right? But they they're not as contemporary. Like modern readers struggle with them a little bit more. You, it, it takes more patience to actually sit and read through some of the Socratic dialogues because they're all over the place. And the ancient Greeks were more comfortable with that. But he he's ultimately seems to be everything socrates says is ambiguous but he clearly you know when someone says a lot of ambiguous stuff you still kind of get the general direction they're moving in and it's clear to anybody reading socrates that he's basically he's heading in the same direction as the stoics and that the, the stoics loved socrates and they just thought look we, we really need a kind of uh what's the expression you know a sort of idiot's guide to socrates right we we just need the, <laughs> we we need the conclusions right yeah. and i know yeah, you yeah. guys want us to to think more deeply about everything i know socrates wants us to get there for ourselves but could you just give us like some bullet points and, and so in stoicism you you basically get what socrates is heading towards but it's presented more as conclusions and then the practical implications of living in accord with those values is is worked out more systematically now it's not as cut and dry as that because Sometimes Socrates does say things quite unambiguously. And there were probably early Socratic pieces of literature that were more didactic and did lay things more simply. And there probably are lost uh, Stoic dialogues that are meandering and aporetic, as we say. They're questioning and ambiguous and are all over the place that maybe haven't survived today because only about one percent of the literature actually survives so we've got to be kind of careful when we generalize about what they did or didn't say because we know nothing you know we, we only really scratched the, the surface of what they were writing and talking about i mean we, we luckily we probably know the main themes um, but we don't really have a good representation of the overall literature because we only got a tiny fragment of it. But what we do have from from Plato and Xenophon are these Socratic dialogues that encourage us to reason and raise lots of questions, question after question after question. Um, and then what we have from the Stoics more are a load of notes on how to actually put this into practice in our daily lives. So when I read the Stoics, I thought, okay, it's clearer now how these things are connected and how you would actually put this into practice in a a psychotherapy. When I first started writing about this, some people said to me, look, what you're doing is reading too much between the lines. They said that the Stoics aren't talking about psychotherapy. You're kind of manipulating, uh, taking things out of context or whatever, reinterpreting, you know, to make it look like it fits more into psychotherapy you know whenever you you do anything there's always going to be people that 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 kind of say no 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 that's you you're you're that's not really what they meant and they'll question you but actually now it's fairly widely accepted that the stoics were describing a, a precursor a cognitive therapy that that argument's kind of blown over everybody seems to agree with me now like but honestly when <laughs> i started writing about that everyone disagreed with me so i guess somehow i won or everyone just changed their mind and decided they'd agree with me but it's a weird feeling because yeah. I was like, hey, "You guys all told me I was wrong about this, and now nobody wants to argue about it anymore." They yeah. so, but the Stoics actually use the word therapy, therapeia, to describe what yes. they're doing, and the, yes. the therapeutic or the medical model occurs throughout their writing. It was, it's very, very common. So I, th- I actually think people say that just haven't really looked closely enough at the classics. Many people who have read Plato would, would immediately say, of course, he's doing a therapy. Like he says over and over again, it's a kind of medicine for the mind that involves talking rather than drugs. Yada, yada. You know, it's, it's clear that the, the Stoics and Socrates thought of what they were doing uh, according in part. To a prominent medical model and they actually describe it as a form of therapy and then we've got the whole history of how modern cognitive therapy was influenced by that and drew upon it which is another part of the story but you know
1: these things do all actually fit (laughs) together luckily for me yeah well they called it epith apatheia right which is not like being apathetic but apatheia is kind of being tranquil and calm and that comes from the therapy of anger fear depression anxiety all these things that we experience today
0: that's one of the words you know like you can play this weird game with greek philosophy whereby you know everything ends up meaning something different from what it actually meant so like the word stoic with a lowercase s means something different. epicurean means what nowadays when people say epicurean they mean like someone that enjoys fancy food and stuff but that's not what it meant skeptic means something different cynic definitely means something different now from what it meant in ancient greece and apatheia um is basically like literally is the word for apathy but that's just our anglicized version of it but it doesn't in greek it literally means freedom from or absence of pathos now, pathos is this annoyingly ambiguous Greek word, which is this, the root of a lot of confusion, because it, it can mean suffering, as in our words, pathology comes from pathos. Um, it can mean disease or disturbance or suffering, but it also means desire and emotion. Like It's the root of our word passion. So I think it's clear from the discussions that they have and the comments that we have from authors like Cicero, there's, there's no question, if you look closely, that the Stoics are specifically talking about unhealthy or pathological passions. They don't mean all emotion. So apathy, their goal, which could be translated as being cured of or having completed therapy for our unhealthy or pathological emotions. You know, so really it just denotes the 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 cure, the outcome of the the therapy for one. Uh, We're putting it, but it doesn't mean eliminating these feelings. It really it just means rising above them and not being controlled by them. Um, the Stoics weren't trying to be like robots or Mister Spock or whatever they they thought we they, we would have a healthy range of emotions, but they wouldn't control us uh, with the, the goal that they wanted.
1: Well, maybe we can delve a little bit deeper into it now that we're talking about it, because I spoke to my brother when I recommended him your book, actually, and he mm-hmm. was like, Stoic, why do I want to read Stoic? It's like, these guys are emotionless, and I was saying, because honestly, I used to think as well, you know, with a lowercase Stoic, one thinks about that. You think it's just a an absence of emotion or being kind of tough and unmoved, kind of resilient, but you don't actually think that it's this huge historical thing with many, many techniques and strategies. So I don't know if you want to just dispel that misconception, because I think it's very important for people to have that, because when you don't understand that, you have an aversion to Stoicism. Yeah, well,
0: Like, I mean, there's lots of things we could say. You know, I used to discuss the Greek and the, the theories of Stoicism, and then I realized that was a really boring and long-winded way to try and win this <laughs> argument, right? And mm-hmm. now what I like to tell people is that Chrysippus, the second head of the Stoic school, according to one author anyway, died laughing at one of his own jokes about a donkey right okay. <laughs> so the, the Stoics wrote about comedy some of them were some of the Stoics were comedians these Stoics have jokes like they uh, they were satirists in the ancient world uh, Seneca's nephew um, Lucan um, uh, was friends with a, a famous satirist called Perseus and we have some of his writings today he was a stoic satirist. And other satirists, um, such as uh, Lucian or uh, also Horace wrote satires, were, were influenced by Stoicism and drew upon Stoic ideas and wrote about it as well. So the Stoics did comedy, right? And also in the Meditations, the, uh, one of the best answers to this idea is that Marcus Aurelius says right at the beginning that uh, one of his Stoic tutors, uh, Sextus of Hereneia, uh, showed him what it meant to be a Stoic. And he said that Sextus was a man who was free from passion and yet full of love, Philostorgia. He means this kind of paternal love or brotherly love. So he's free from passion and yet full of love. And and a better translation would be he's free from unhealthy passions and yet full of love. Because if we take it to mean free from passion as in like like a robot that sentence do- then doesn't make any sense at all Like how could you be free from all emotion and yet full of love that would that would just be a contradiction so he clearly means free of the unhealthy emotions free of the pathological passions and yet full of healthy uh, you know brotherly love and again that's a good hint at why stoicism might have influenced early christianity because this aspect of stoicism the emphasis on brotherly love and cosmopolitanism and all that is very similar to uh, early christian uh, concepts of brotherly love and and so on
1: Mm. Yeah, because marcus aurelius didn't really care that much for people but he understood that service and duty to other people was one of the main tenets of stoicism and therefore you know, put away those initial feelings and, and moved on to serve people and and uh, kind of sacrifice his own feelings or or change his feelings, transfer his feelings? Well, funnily
0: enough, I'm always cautious about when people kind of arrive at psychological conclusions about Marcus's personality based on his writings. But I think it's fair to say he was an introvert. I mean, I think that's beyond question. Like, he's definitely an introvert. And like he's, he's he'd rather he'd much rather be off reading books somewhere than, than hanging out at parties without question, <laughs> like and yeah. he, that that's abundantly clear. Um, he he's kind of a bit he's a bit of a loner. He is very affectionate towards his friends and his family, um, and some people even say that he was he was very friendly and personable towards others. But he he obviously prefers his own company and he likes his books and stuff. Like he's you know so he's a little bit of a loner in that respect. And yet, you know, he commanded one of the largest armies ever assembled on the Roman frontier. (laughs) And uh, he was in command of 140,000 men. And, uh, you know, he was the the Roman emperor, like the most important man in the known world. He was a, a man of paradox.
1: Yeah, I think, I think we all are. And I think obviously when so many of the texts have disappeared or are not there anymore, it's quite hard to piece together. So I was quite impressed that you pieced together so well in your book. And when I actually listened to the first podcast and I just heard you speaking about it, I was I was amazed because I kind of thought, well, I've only really heard of the meditations and then I've read about him in the books that I've mentioned when we were talking before this. So I thought like, what what is, what is someone going to be able to write about a whole yeah. book on how Marcus Aurelius lived? So before we do get into the, the book a little bit more in detail on Marcus Aurelius and his childhood and those things i think it was quite interesting and being the dad syndicate i thought i have to touch on this and by the way i'm very yeah. glad that your editor included the introduction because i thoroughly enjoyed it and um it took me a long time to get through it as i was saying because i was reading so many parts and i was like i'd love to ask him about this i'd love to ask him about this but one thing was how your daughter played a bit of a role in you actually ending up writing this book
0: oh well, that's easy to answer because like when I, so I'm like, I'm divorced and uh, my, my daughter was about two years old when I, I separated from my wife. And so, you know, I'd have joint custody and I'd be looking after my daughter at the weekends and, and I'd recently emigrated like a few years earlier. I would moved from the countryside in Canada to the, the, the nearest city, Halifax, in Nova Scotia. So I have my, so I've got my daughter and I'm, I'm, and you know we're, we're we're wading through the snow. There's a guy walking past wearing skis, like you know we're we're in this kind of. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Halifax in winter could be a slightly um, you know brutal environment at times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It snows heavily, and uh, you know we're, I'm trying to entertain it. I didn't have a car. Right. So we're kind of walking, we're trudging around in the snow, like at the weekends, trying to figure out uh, things to do with this little kid. And so she's like, she says, daddy, tell me a story. And she kept kind of tugging on my sleeve and saying, daddy, tell me another story. Tell me another story. So, I I mean, I didn't know any stories. And uh, I'd take her to library and read books to her and stuff like that. But uh, I thought, well, I need to come up with more stories. I was under a lot of pressure, you understand, to come up with stories. <laughs> so I started telling her about Greek oh, mythology. I thought, well, no, all these stories about Greek mythology. I'll tell her all that. And she really, she really got into Greek mythology and she'd asked me a lot of questions about it. And uh, she really, her favorite is Hercules, right? Yes. Medusa. All oh, little girls love Medusa. So she loves Medusa. <laughs> but, um, she loves Hercules. and uh, And then I, I thought, I'm running out of stories about Greek mythology actually. And I thought, well, <laughs> I'll tell her about Socrates and Diogenes the Cynic, right?
1: At four years old, wow.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um cool. And so like I started to tell her all these stories. Um, yeah, she'd be about four years old by the time I got into kind of telling all these stories and stuff, four or five. And so she's kind of, she's asking me about it. I'm telling her a lot of stories about Socrates. I was surprised that she could understand some of them, but I kept them really simple. And, uh, you know, I... And I cleaned and sanitized them a little bit for. her. I simplified them as well. So she got she used to ask me a lot about it. I mean, to be fair, I think partly she was interested in Diogenes the Cynic because she kind of imagined that he actually was a dog. So I told <laughs> her that the Cynic means dog, and there was this guy called Diogenes the Dog, and people used to throw stones yeah. at him and make fun of him and stuff. And he was like, "I don't care. Like, sticks and stones can may hurt your bones, but words will never hurt me." And, uh, you know, we, we talked about some of the things he said and did and all that, but I think she thought he was a dog.
1: Is he the guy that apparently or allegedly uh, told Alexander yeah. to stand aside because he was standing in his son?
0: Yeah, I told her that story. She likes that story. You know, the, the so there was this tradition that these philosophers could look kings in the eye because if you don't care about wealth or power, then you're not going to be intimidated by... The, the wealthiest and most powerful man in the world. Yes. And then the other flip side of the story was that people say Alexander said he wanted to be like Diogenes. He wished he could be that free. And uh, he told his friends, you know, if I wasn't Alexander, I'd like to be Diogenes. And he said, "What when I finished conquering the East, I'm going to come back and I want to learn from you. But he never he never came back. He died uh, too young to come back and, and study philosophy and people say that when alexander died he said he wanted the casket made so that his hands were hanging out on either side and that he would be carried through the various towns on his on his way um to be buried or cremated or whatever they did with his body and he wanted to show everybody that his empty hand he, he was leaving empty handed you know like we say you can't you can't take it all with you Right, so he said, "Have my hands <laughs> hanging empty out the side of the casket." I want everyone to see that you can't take yeah. any of this stuff with you. Wow! Um, so a bit, a bit like a hint of Diogenes there in that little anecdote. But you know, also the the thing about this is we these stories might all be BS, right? <laughs> because they they're this is we are now in the realms of um, what what historians like to say is you know that this is this is all. Uh, kind of anecdote and stuff. In fact, some of these stories might actually derive from satirical plays, right? So Diogenes, we don't have any writings from him at all. We we just have all these little anecdotes and stories, which sound like, and some of them definitely are from from satire. And so he he's almost more like a kind of a construct, a fictional construct. He's like this this fictional ideal, an archetype of this uh, f- cynical philosopher that. You know, who knows like how similar it was to the real the real guy? I mean it's a little bit like some of the problems that, that people have with, with early uh, Christianity and the you know how accurate the stories about Jesus. You know, like uh, are are all of these stories true, or like, did is this really what he said and did, or is it are they kind of you know more indirectly inspired by real historical events? With with Diogenes there's this question mark, you know, how much of these things can we actually believe about him we don't have reliable contemporary accounts of his life and he didn't write anything himself but and we have this to some extent with other philosophers although you know the other ones did leave writings so socrates we call it socratic problem he didn't write anything either although we have much more detailed accounts of his life but then you know what hit me was i was telling poppy these stories and basically my my editor said to me we we want you to write a book uh, about stoicism and I thought well that's what I do so I I, I guess that's fair but you know the, the problem is that I've already written books about stoicism so I can't I can't just keep doing that indefinitely <laughs> and they they were kind of like well well you did one before and it, it, it kind of worked so you know we we want to kind of we, we want to do it again but so we need to do the same thing but different and I was like, I can't write a beginner's guide to Stoicism because I've already written one of those, and there's loads of them. Um, matomo has written one, Chuck Chakrapani, like, yeah, there's there's loads of um, beginner's guide to Stoicism stuff. thought, well, what am I going to do then? I can't um, just you know write the same book again. So I thought, okay, what if I told stories about Stoicism? Like, because my little girl seems to be able to understand these stories. And, you know, maybe I could teach people about Stoicism by telling them stories about historical figures. And I thought that would be more engaging, maybe, at least for some people. Even kids can understand some of this stuff. It might even appeal to a different demographic. And actually, I realized it helps to get around a lot of the criticisms of Stoicism. So people think Stoics are unemotional. But if you look at Marcus Aurelius's private letters, he's an incredibly affectionate man. And so you can more easily dispel these misconceptions just by looking at real dudes in history and, and saying, look at this guy, you know, and tell me he's unemotional. Or people say, well, aren't the Stoics really passive? Like, they, they're, they, they're doormats because they accept everything. And they say, well, look at Cato and look at uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius, uh, and look at Scipio Africanus, you know, these, these Roman uh, generals. You know they're the opposite they're you know they were vigorous uh you know workaholics, men of action, you know, like it's obvious that they're not interpreting stoicism as being really passive, like the doormats or something so it helps to dispel some of the misconceptions just by pointing at real people and it allows us to tell the the story from a different angle, but then I thought, well. Who will I tell a story about? Because I guess we could tell a story as you know, the founder of Stoicism, but we don't really know that much about him. There's a couple of good anecdotes, and then the rest is all missing. It's lost. And I thought, well, the Stoic that we know most about is Marcus Aurelius, because he was kind of a big deal back in the day. Like, he was the most powerful man in the known world. So Marcus Aurelius is an easy guy to tell stories about because we know a lot about him. I guess I'd like to say, actually, you said... Um, You know, what can you say about him? And some of the people even that reviewed the books assumed... I've learned a lesson, by the way. When people listen to the audiobook, they don't know that there are footnotes. So some of the people that listened to the audiobook thought, he's making all these stories up about Marcus Aurelius. And they they didn't like that. They were like, how dare you make all these stories up about Marcus Aurelius? And I was like, I don't understand. They're they're, They're all referenced against the Historia Augusta, Cassius Dio, Herodian, like um you know i'm just i'm deriving them all from the the historical sources and the modern biographies like i studied all the modern biographies in detail and uh, the 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 roman histories i've read so many times you know i've virtually memorized like whole chunks of them but they uh and so i referenced most of it you know i couldn't do every single uh lying otherwise it would, there'd be more references than there were pages in the in the book <laughs> it's quite long as it is <laughs> yeah like so they but they didn't know that because they listened to the audiobook so they they assumed even people that told me they they read the meditations religiously they thought you must be making this up because we don't know anything about Marx aurelius life and i was like that's really surprising because there are loads of modern biographies on him and we, we have at least three major histories of his reign from the Roman era, and we also have lots of other fragments, and we, there's a bunch of archaeological evidence as well that tells us about his reign, so yeah, you can easily fill a whole book with mm. stuff about Marcus Aurelius.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I definitely enjoyed getting to know him a little bit better. And I think it's exactly what you say, that it kind of just reading that book can dispel all your former beliefs about Stoicism. So so anybody who doesn't understand Stoicism, I think it's a great place to start, because as it starts from Marcus Aurelius being a young boy and leads into his death, which you speak about actually at the beginning of the book, to his relationships with his sons, which we'll get into a little bit later, I think that it definitely showed his range of emotions and kind of humanized him a lot. And I was quite surprised at how much he was in touch with his emotions and, and these kind of things and, and kind of connected me a lot with that. Um, what I thought we could do is is talk a little bit about Marcus Aurelius from his young years because he obviously is ex- yeah. talking about emotions. He experienced um, tragedy obviously quite early on when he was just a few years old. His own father died and then it kind of set into motion quite a few events and different people coming to his life. So I don't know if you want to walk us through his early childhood up to his teen years and to some of the... Uh, mentors that he had and some of his teachers that he had, um, some of them stoic philosophers and teachers, and then other ones teaching him rhetoric and different kinds of philosophies and him eventually choosing Stoicism as the the philosophy of choice, so to speak, at the age of about 25.
0: Well I'll try I'll try and be concise because it would take a long time <laughs> to go through all of that stuff. Yeah. But he was born as a uh, he was born at Rome into a noble family and he it's a little bit of a convoluted story, but basically the emperor Hadrian um, knew Marcus's family and he saw this kid and thought he should be my successor, but he was too young. And so Hadrian had to appoint uh, an interim uh, ruler. He appointed a guy called Antoninus Pius, uh, or, who became known as Antoninus Pius. Confusingly, uh, Romans changed their names and, um, at different points in their life, and particularly when the, the Roman emperor is appointed Caesar or emperor, he tends to change his name. But the, So the guy that we know as Antoninus Pius was appointed as Hadrian's successor on condition that he adopted Marcus Aurelius, whose uh, father had died um, when he was very young, we think maybe when he was around about four, f- three, four, five years old, roughly. Marcus's father seems to have died. We we don't know exactly how. And so Marcus was brought up by his mother and by his paternal grandfather. And he became familiar with the court of Hadrian through his family connections. And Hadrian seems to to have known him and taken a a kind of shine to him. And there's this odd thing, though, that Hadrian nicknamed him Verissimus, which means most true or most truthful, because Marcus's family name was Verus, which means true. And and Hadrian said, well, you're not only true, you're the truest of all. Like, and it, it seems that maybe he, Marcus was very blunt with him or something when he was a small child, and Hadrian and thought this was funny and gave him this nickname. But it's serious because actually we know um, there are it's either coins or medallions from Marcus's reign. Um, where the name Verisimus is used. So we know that like everybody knew that he had this nickname. It's not like a, an obscure childhood thing. It's, it, he, he was known throughout um, during his reign as, as having this nickname uh, of the most truthful. And uh, so t- and telling the truth is one of the major themes of the meditations. He goes on about it a lot. So he was brought up at the court of Hadrian, which Hadrian was really into sophists and Greek culture. And rhetoric and oratory, um, which isn't about telling the truth. It's more about manipulating the truth. And so Marcus kind of stood with stood out in that respect. And then I, I don't think Marcus really was all that inspired by Hadrian. We were told he, he he really objected to being appointed emperor. It, it wasn't um, the you know the 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 big uh, the big cherished prize that people tend to assume. I think a quarter of Roman emperors are assassinated, and you know it's not—it's not the best job. Like it's a poison chalice, you know, potential. Like so, and Marcus looked at Hadrian's court, and what he seems to really have thought was that it's just corrupt, and you're surrounded by sycophants and also by traitors. You know, it's like you've got um, these people sucking up to you on one side, and, and these people trying to undermine you or assassinate you on the other side. And he's like, "This is just the most toxic in work environment ever, right?" He's <laughs> like, <so> well. <laughs> "I don't, I don't, I don't want anything to do with this." And, and you know, like, I mean, you know, I like, I quite like the palace, but I don't, I don't want to live there, and I don't want to be surrounded by all this nonsense for the rest of my life. Thanks very much. And, and so I think reading between the lines, it seems to me Marcus clearly changed his mind about this. Although in the meditations, which are written decades later, he's still kind of whinging about it a bit. So there are bits in the meditations where he says, and, and, and we can actually say whinging because, or whining. Um, he says in the meditations, don't let people hear you complaining about court life anymore. <laughs> and this is decades later he's still going out he's still, he's still not you know a bit annoyed about it and but he's come he's gradually come to terms with it and he decided to take the job and i think if we ask ourselves why did he change his mind and how did he get from thinking i don't want anywhere anything to do with this uh to to thinking maybe maybe i can do it I think it was because of Antoninus Pius. I think after Hadrian died, Pius became emperor, and Marcus looked at him and thought, actually, you know what? Maybe there is a way that somebody could maintain his integrity and do this job. And he thought, Hadrian, not a chance. I don't want to be like him. I don't want to be turned into Hadrian. But maybe I could be an emperor like Antoninus Pius. Now, in the meditations where he's describing his role models, he doesn't mention Hadrian once right he mentions his name a couple of times later on but only to say wow isn't it weird to think hadrian's dead you know i used to know him (laughs) when i was a kid and, and now he's a pile of ashes in the mausoleum
1: yeah
0: like you know there are guys that work under me like officers in the army that have only read about hadrian in history books and 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 they when they think about hadrian they think of statues that they've seen i used to know him when i was a kid so later on, we've got Marcus thinking of Hadrian with, with this kind of, as a memento mori, but he doesn't say anything about him as a role model, He, which is striking. Um, but Antoninus Pius, he says a lot about, and I think actually we can tell something about the way he talks about his adoptive father and the preceding emperor. So he goes into so much detail about the qualities that he admires in Antoninus Pius writing um, approximately 15, 20 years, about a 10 or 15 years after Pius had died. Um, Marcus is, is still reflecting on the qualities he can learn from him. It's clear to me that he cannot be writing that off the cuff, right? He's obviously spent a lot of time thinking about these qualities. He's not just winging this. It's not just kind of like free-flowing, Like these are things that he's written down before. Like I would say, it's too long. It's almost like it's about a page of it's far more detailed than he goes into about anyone else. And then later in the Meditations, he he does it again. There's another passage where he writes about the qualities that he admires in Antoninus. So it looks like this is something he's probably done repeatedly over the years and he, it looks like he's really processed it and digested it if you stopped him in the street and said can you tell me the things you admire at Antoninus Pius you'd still be there half an hour later while he rattles off a list <laughs> right. it's
1: yeah. like
0: he's, he's really learned this
1: yeah well, it's really cool to actually hear that, read about it in your book, because obviously, when you read the meditations, the first part is him like speaking about these other people, and that was kind of something that he did is that he used other people as models of how he should live his life, and so there were also quite a lot of them, and I think having no father um, or his father passing away, and then obviously being chosen by Hadrian, which I find is is remarkable to choose a 5-year-old um at that age that you have already earmarked him then he has Antoninus as his adopted father and he does a wonderful job and then he has all these these different um these mentors and teachers and stuff uh, i think it was Junius Rusticus that was yeah. Yeah, the one he was closest to and actually became like a friend to him even
0: yeah he used to kiss him on the lips uh when he met him but this was normal in roman i mean there are some things actually people would find Surprising, but Roman men were very, at least Roman noblemen, probably most Romans were very uh, affectionate, you know, like they'd hold hands and kiss each other and lips and things like that, like because that was their culture, you know. And uh, so Junius Rusticus, uh, we're told, even before the the Praetorian Guard, the other people that, no, that Marcus as emperor would normally greet and kiss first, he'd always embrace Rusticus and kiss him as if it was his own brother. And uh, we, we're also told, in uh, the Historia Augusta, that that many men called Marcus father or son, um, because if he was very close to them, he would he would he would allow them to do this, and so he probably referred to Unius Rusticus as father, and Rusticus probably called him son, if that's true. Um, so they they had this very close relationship, and unfortunately, we don't have any sort of direct account of it. We just have his comments in the Meditations. We don't see the letters. Um, but we do have the private correspondence between Marcus and Fronto. And so we, we get this amazing glimpse into, you know, it's like, it's kind of like ancient Roman reality TV in a way. Yes. Like, we, it's like we've got like a, a camera in the, in the sitting room. And, you know, we're like literally just seeing these two guys chatting. And and Fronto talks a lot about his gout. Like he's, he's complaining all the time about aches and pains and stuff. And sometimes, you know, I think Marcus at one point has a cold, and he's he has a little complaint about how his nose is running and stuff. He found a scorpion in his bed one day, and he talks about that. And this, there's a few kind of jokes, and they talk about arranging parties and things. and like so, we have this real insight into their their personal life, and, and Marcus is incredibly affectionate. And he's he's very warm and affectionate uh, towards his family, and in so much so that some people thought that there was a there must have been a like a, a homosexual uh, relationship between them because they look almost like lovers' letters. I mean, every letter pretty much he kind of starts off by saying how much he misses the guy and he loves him. You know, and he's, and it's just not how you today you would speak to one of your friends. And I, I don't know. I, I think for a couple of reasons, I think that's it's unlikely that there was a sexual relationship between them. Um, although it's not impossible. But my one of my counter arguments is at one point that Marcus says he has his intense burning love for Fronto, and then he goes on to say, uh, you know, just like the, the the love that I have for my mother. And okay. I thought, well, yeah. that's a bit different then (laughs) like you know you
1: don't you
0: don't say to your sexual partner i love you just as much as i love my Mm mum." Like that's that sounds odd he what he's saying is that he has this intense burning affectionate love for his family and friends which seems seems odd to us but it's the opposite of mr spock right yeah completely more affectionate far more affectionate than Mm. than most people would be with their friends today
1: well, he just had so many of these people that played a role in his life. And that's what I kind of loved about the story is that, you know, if he found these father figures, like you said, Rusticus was a, like a father, Fronto, like a really good friend. But what was interesting to me is that he that he had such a close relation with Fronto, but didn't really choose his line of philosophy. Because Fronto was basically teaching him about rhetoric, right? Whereas Rusticus yeah. was more teaching about stoicism. And even though he was so close to that, because obviously um, when you look at, you know, we can talk about that, well we don't have that much time left but you know obviously he had his brother who was co-emperor with him eventually which was lucius verus who grew up obviously in the same situation as him chose a completely different way and and Marcus could have gone other ways, but then chose the Stoic way by watching people like Antoninus and watching people like Rusticus. And then, and like, as you said, with Fronto, who was complaining about stuff a lot, he probably saw these kind of qualities, which then made him think, well, I don't want to be like that. There was one letter that I think Fronto wrote to Marcus that actually, he told him that he spoke badly about him in front of other people, right? actually. yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, because... Uh- he said he didn't. Th- he thought Marcus was a bit antisocial. He wasn't. He wasn't mingling enough at the the games and at parties and stuff.
1: Reading in the theatre, such. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was the actually the interesting one was his physician Galen, who also then played a major part. You speak about him quite a lot in the in the chapter in one of the chapters there.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Galen uh, was a, an interesting guy, like a real bookworm he wasn't a stoic but he'd read the stoics and and so he was he was very influenced by them and we we get fragments of of an understanding of stoicism from galen's writings as well but it shows that even people who weren't stoics around marcus were were familiar with the philosophy and and you know even have been quite well read in it um, but he did. He had all of these role models and influential figures in his life, giving him, uh, you know, a, a, lots of advice. But I mean, I think that's kind of also counterbalanced. I imagine that's what his life was like at Rome. And I, I guess I can't emphasise enough that that when the war broke out and he went to the Danube, basically, I mean, he moved around a bit. But for instance, for several years, he was stationed at Carnuntum near Vienna on the on the River Danube and the during the first Marcomanic and the Second Marcomanic Wars. And his life, although in some ways some of his some of the members of his retinue would have gone with him and he would have still had some of the trappings of, of being an emperor, his life changed dramatically at that point. And he was you know, from that point he was definitely surrounded by soldiers. And he, he really wouldn't have seen that much of the army before that. Um but, you know, he, he was in a, living in another planet um from that point onwards. And, uh, you know, he went from being surrounded by, um, you know, all of these intellectuals and sophists and philosophers in Rome to to placing himself pretty much on the front line with the army. And he he would probably have been writing letters to philosophers and still had a few around him. There were some probably who were generals in the army. Um, But, you know, most of the time he probably felt that he was now talking to people that had suddenly hadn't read uh, the same things he'd been reading and, and he couldn't have the same kind of conversations with them anymore.
1: Well, war does seem like quite a paradox to be leading the Roman army to war and be one of the greatest Stoics that we've, that has ever lived or that we know about. It's a really interesting kind of uh, dichotomy there for sure. And then it was interesting to me to see how Hadrian was so different to Antoninus and then Marcus Aurelius. And then naturally, once Marcus grew up and had his own kids, then we obviously have most men that are listening to this podcast and a lot of women have watched the Gladiator movie, one of the oh, favorite yeah. movies. And then in that movie, you see an interpretation of Commodus. And I think I don't think it was as, as, as close to that as reality. But in your book, you do speak a little bit about um, Commodus and that relationship and how Marcus did – Appoint him his heir, even though Commodus wasn't showing the virtue that Marcus had. do You, why do you think he did that?
0: Well, actually, I wrote a whole blog article about this because it's a it's a bit of a complicated thing to answer. So I'll try and give a kind of pared down version of it. So first of all, Gladiator. I like Gladiator. I mean, I think it's a great movie. And and by the way, there's a sequel coming out. And
1: sequel. yeah,
0: the Gladiator <laughs> 2 is coming out soon. And the, the guy that's the, sc- the screenwriter for it ha- has re- is reading, how to think, like a Roman emperor as well. Um, <laughs> cool. We got in touch with him and he says he's got a copy of it and he's reading it for his research. So the so these things all kind of come full circle because Gladiator was one of the things that, that kind of helped to fuel my interest. And what they show about Commodus it isn't really very accurate, but there are little kind of aspects of it that are accurate.
1: Yeah, that's what I picked up, yeah.
0: So, oh, I mean, for one of the confusing things is that w- that there were actually during Marcus's reign there were co-emperors, and Commodus was actually appointed emperor um, three about three years before Marcus died. So, in the movie, Commodus wants to succeed Marcus as emperor, and he he murders his father. He's played by Richard Harris. But in fact, Commodus had already been emperor for three years by the time that Marcus died. He was he was ruling alongside him. Um, ah, yes, so there were rumors that, that Commodus may have. Cassius Dio seems to buy into some rumors that Commodus might have had Marcus assassinated. Although Cassius Dio also says that uh Marcus was dying of some disease, um, which sounds like it was probably the, the Antonine Plague, which we think might have been smallpox. And so, it, it, what he says is a bit odd because he says he thinks. Commodus kind of hastened his death although it, it, it although Marcus was already dying anyway um so the I think um they, we have we it's interesting if you look at what's happened in gladiator with, with Commodus but it, there are, there are bits of it that might be accurate but then there's bits of it that aren't really accurate why did Marcus allow Commodus to even be appointed emperor in the first place you then might ask and uh again it's a complicated question. The, the bare facts that you need to know are that, Mar- that Commodus was appointed Caesar, the successor to Marcus, when he was about four or five years old. Um, and he did it at the behest of Lucius Verus, his brother, and probably also at the behest of the Senate. So I get the impression that the, basically the the Romans were, their big fear was... Um, that there would be a civil war, and they they desperately wanted to avoid confusion over the succession of, of an emperor. And I think they almost thought it's better to have a bad emperor than to have no emperor at all, right? Because if if you've got a bad emperor, you 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 could, they might be corrupt, but maybe you can kind of sideline them a bit or work around their corruption. But if you don't have an emperor and everyone's just it just descends into civil war and chaos, then we're really in trouble. That would actually that would have been worse than Commodus, right? I mean, a bad emperor is like a temporary thing, but like, uh, um, and they might get assassinated anyway after a while, But like, you know, if it descends into chaos and the, and the empire's fragmented, that's a big fear. Then then we're really in trouble. Like, you know, then the whole thing falls apart. Like the only thing that keeps the barbarians out is like, that we're all kind of united and we can send legions across the empire and stuff. But if we split it into three separate kingdoms or something like that, like or three empires that, you know or two emp- like, then it, it, it becomes dangerous. And so I think that that's what their fear was. And so I think they thought Marcus they, they thought they looked at Marcus and thought, look you, you guys might die, right You might be assassinated. you might die in a war, you might die from the plague. So we need you to appoint a successor now as a, a safety measure so that if you or Lucius drop dead, like, you know, we, we have these guys ready and lined up to step in and take a place. So there's no, there's no confusion over the succession. And this idea of having a co-emperor we like as well. I think this is the Senate, you know, because if one of you guys dies, then the other one is still there. And we, it, we, we don't just descend into to fighting and chaos. And, I think that was their their anxiety, and then Lucius did drop dead shortly after that, like probably from the plague or, or some sort of illness. Um, so I think they they just thought, look, we just we your sons uh, need to be appointed. And actually, the deeper question would be why he had kids at all, because um, he knew that if what he did know was that if he had a son, he would have to be appointed to successor, regardless of his character. Because contrary to what people often say about Roman history, although the the uh, successors to the emperor were appointed by adoption, that was usually because they didn't have a, a legitimate son that they could they could put in place. And generally, if the emperor had a a, a son uh, by birth, he would be a contender for the throne. And so, if Marcus had adopted someone else, <coughs> that's a problem. Because now you have a rival faction, and again you potentially split the empire. So you you might just have a bunch of people that don't agree with the emperor rallying around Commodus and saying you're the rightful king or you're the rightful emperor. You know you you should have been appointed and not this other guy that he's adopted. And so they they knew this is a problem. If Marcus has a, a son, he he basically has to be his successor, contrary to what people sometimes say. And and so then the question would be, well, wasn't it risky for him to have a son? Like, because he doesn't know what he's going to turn out like. It's a gamble. So who knows? Um, but he had a lot of children. He had about 14 children altogether, which, again, you know, the, all the gossip about his wife's infidelity and stuff, you know, arguably, it it makes it seem like a, perhaps a little bit less likely because she would have been pregnant a lot of the time. <laughs> um, so she... And Marcus clearly idolises us. So when we, we kind of look at we, it, kind of looks like she's probably more likely to have been a faithful wife, and then probably pretty busy with all the kids and stuff. And yeah.
1: childhood. well, a lot, a lot of the lot of the kids um, died actually, and and I think in your book you talk about Marcus crying for his kids when they died, passed away. I think in those days it was quite common for a lot of the well, a large percentage of children to die. That would
0: have been pretty common, especially during the plague. A lot of the plague particularly affected children and, and the elderly. Half of his children died before he did. Um and, and by the time he died, although he had several sons, and actually another one of them was appointed Caesar at the same time as Commodus. So the plan clearly was that Commodus would have reigned alongside his brother. But the brother died. Um like a, a a year or two later, yeah, he was like five or six years old. Um, his name was Marcus Anius Verus. He was actually named after Marcus. That's the name that Marcus had in childhood as well. So he uh, he died, and then it was just Commodus. By the time Marcus died, Commodus was the only son that he had left. And uh, I guess I imagine the emotional process that he's gone through, you know, maybe of several times already. Oh, gosh, I don't know. He probably had like maybe three or four other sons that had died by that point. And so, it, it, you know, Marcus, each time he's had a son, has probably thought, this guy's going to be my successor, maybe, or one of my successors. And then the child dies, and not only is there the trauma bereavement, but also uh, the, the the confusion and anxiety about the, the whole question of the succession keeps coming up over and over again during his reign. You know, every time he has a son and then one of the sons dies, he's potentially... People are looking at that, thinking, "What's going on? What's going to happen when the old man dies?"
1: Mm. But I mean, it's it's interesting though because in the movie, obviously talking about the movie, and now, we know it's not fact. But he says, "My your failures as a son, or my failures as a father." And it's it's interesting. Yes, he had Commodus, um, and there was always a risk. But did he? Is there any evidence of the relationship that it had, or? effort that he put in here because when you're looking at a lot of the annals of history whether you talk about winston churchill nelson mandela john f kennedy theodore roosevelt these were great men just like marcus was was great and and is revered as a roman emperor yet his son didn't follow in his footsteps and shows a lot of pathological behavior emotions um a complete opposite kind of focus in philosophy um mm-hmm. do you think he was he neglected his role because he was just on the front line so much that he actually just wasn't able to be there and and influence Commodus?
0: Oh gosh, it's, it's a like, well. We should dig into this because we're talking about parenting and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the two sides are you know like how Antoninus was with Marcus, and then and actually maybe we can kill two birds with one stone here and say like what's the difference between Marcus's upbringing and Commodus's upbringing? Yeah. Maybe that's a good entry point actually. Well, Marcus, uh, Marcus's father was there all the time. His adoptive father, um, Antoninus, never left his side, and the the pair of them have hardly ever left Rome. I, mean, I think the Historia Augusta goes as far as to say something like, you know, they were only apart for like t- three days or something throughout the like the whole period of the uh, Antoninus's reign, which was like um, about twenty years. It was a long, long time. Um, so Antoninus was emperor for like twenty years, and Marcus was like his second in command for much of that time. Um, and and so almost you know we we think of marcus as becoming emperor when he was acclaimed emperor but actually it's not as clear cut as that marcus was a kind of virtual emperor for years and years before that um and he took over progressively more responsibilities from antoninus so it it was more of a kind of gradual process rather than a kind of a instant uh you know transition but um yeah. So like uh, Marcus's father never left his side and, and and he didn't teach him philosophy, but he got the best teachers he could for him. And what Antoninus showed him was how to run the empire. Like he he was an administrator and he showed Marcus what his obligations were and how to do it in a kind of humble and conscientious manner. But, but Commodus wasn't brought up by Marcus. Marcus um, had to go and leave Rome, and for most of that time uh, Commodus would have been brought up um, without Marcus's supervision, although Commodus did sometimes, when he was a little bit older, travel to the military camps with his mother, and I'd say in the last about three years or so, the last five years actually of Marcus's life, uh, Commodus was with him. In the military camp, so even there, I don't know how much time Marcus would have been able to spend with him. But he's, he was—he was obviously trying to to spend more time with him, a bit like Antoninus had had done with him. But uh, Commodus's youth, maybe up until up until Commodus was about fifteen, um, which for Romans was when you became an adult—you you re- you reach adulthood at fifteen. So up until the point he was actually an adult, C- Commodus probably hadn't seen that much of Marcus. Um, he, he probably mainly being in rome and certainly so, you know and rome's a different country right i mean basically marcus was in austria and uh, like uh, slovenia like in the balkans like and and the commodus wow. was in rome so they were pretty mm-hmm. far away and they didn't have facebook you know <laughs> <laughs> they didn't they didn't have skype so they yeah.
1: uh if you if wanted to write him a letter it would probably take taken weeks to get to him yeah Okay, so a little bit of dad deprivation there. I mean, naturally it, it looked like Marcus was quite an exceptional youth. You know, if you if you get earmarked by Hadrian or the Emperor who's completely different to you and he's picked up that you're a very honest youth, it, it looks like he was he was also uh just by his nature that way as well. Whereas perhaps commonness it wasn't as well. But I definitely think as as the dad syndicate here and as we talk about a lot about fathering, I think it is something that A lot of fathers struggle with today is the success in the world outside and being able to spend a lot of time with your your family. And I think that definitely Marcus Aurelius is a little bit of an extreme example of that. But I think it is important to have a dad around. And I think it was interesting that you pointed out that that Antoninus was there a lot and got all those organized, all those tutors and mentors. And I don't know if if um, if Marcus did that as well. But I think it's also just Certain moments that happen, you know, certain people that you meet, and I think Lucius Verus, who was marcus Aurelius's co co emperor and his brother, um ended up very different to marcus and had the same upbringing i know we haven't really actually delved into how to be better parents through stoicism because that's what i'm doing i basically use stoicism i have four kids and i use that like that i don't know if you just want to before we say say goodbye and and end the podcast if you just want to talk about because you wrote a chapter there that really was uh, moving and and hit me and and made me realize how i need to change the way that i speak not only to other people but the way that i speak to, to myself about certain things so so you mentioned catastrophizing events in our lives And I think this is something that everybody needs to hear.
0: The way that we talk about things, yeah. So the Stoics have this term fantasia cataleptica, which means uh, it's sometimes translated as objective representation. And so it means describing events in a matter-of-fact way. So in therapy, I would tend to call that decatastrophizing. Um, Just kind of taking the value judgments and the kind of emotive rhetoric out of things and kind of like describing things in a very down-to-earth factual manner and in therapy we sometimes help people to do that um if they say somebody i'll give you an example so somebody's been in a meeting at work and they feel really anxious and depressed because they think it's gone badly and they say well you know, I, I just wish the ground would have opened and swallowed me up. I feel like that guy kind of tore my nose off and somebody shot me down in flames and I just looked like a complete and utter idiot. And you, you might say to them, well, could you write down a description of what actually happened, but without any value judgments or any emotive rhetoric and just describing the facts? And then what they might say is that, well, somebody disagreed with something that I said. And that may be all that it was, right? And you think, well, like all the other stuff you said kind of adds to the drama of it and those words and metaphors and figures of speech that you used um are, are kind of designed to evoke an emotional reaction but you, why would you want to do that to yourself <laughs> why, why? why not just stick to the facts and then it doesn't seem like such
1: a big deal yeah now, I thought about that myself, and I thought it's so true that how we how we speak to ourselves, it's almost like we're convincing ourselves that something is is worse than it is. Whereas, whereas the Stoics really looked at things as they were, no matter what it was, they kind of broke it down into their elements to kind of um, what is it, desensationalize things. You know, even even in life, when we look around, you know, we we make things into such a big deal. And when we take a step back and look at it from from a distance, or or as you mentioned, these these techniques that you actually use in therapy, which is this co- cognitive distancing. When you start stepping away from the thing that happened and looking at it objectively, it kind of takes its power away and, and stops manipulating yourself. So that was really powerful for me as a parent. Are there any other things in closing that you would say? I mean, like I said, when I when I was reading your book and going through it and thinking what we would discuss, I kind of knew that we'd get to the end and I would have just scratched the surface because there was... There's just so much, and we have any. I think we've just been basically stuck on the first two chapters, and maybe the third now on how to speak wisely. But is there anything that you would specifically say to, firstly, to parents on how how they can use stoicism to communicate better with their children and and obviously with their spouse, and then secondly, um, how would you relate? Because you've got a daughter, obviously, who is the same age as my twins, and it would interest me to see how you. How you teach her? Because I, 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 or do you do you, do you raise her with this philosophy without calling it philosophy, the Stoic philosophy, and teach her those ways? And and how would you do that?
0: Yeah. Okay, so, so first of
1: all, yeah, we could talk forever about
0: Stoicism, you know. Like this, so. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're gonna have to be a little bit selective, um, yeah. but we can maybe we can talk again in the future. So, how the first part of the question is: How would parents communicate with their, their children? And uh, you know, actually, I'd like to broaden that out a bit and say I think the bottom line is that in life, other people will tend to manipulate your emotions by using language to, and that's what rhetoric and oratory are all about to exaggerate things, to amplify things, to use metaphors. All of the toolbox of rhetoric that we all take for granted in daily life is, is designed to to influence other people's emotions and their perspective so we're constantly being brainwashed like you know we do it it's human nature we do it to each other and we do it to ourselves and now social media does it and the news cycle does it and so these guys that create the news it's their job to try and grab your attention and to make things seem sensational so I think you know, a technological era way of looking at this is that a parent's job <coughs> is to try and counter, counteract, to a large extent, the baneful influence of society and media. So what we have to do is is to try and act as a kind of remedy or a counterbalance, at least, for what our kids are getting off the telly and what they're getting off the internet, you know, and, and where they're being bombarded with selective information and fake news and Kind of an emotive news comment uh, uh, stories and stuff. You know the news is desperately just trying to upset them and 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 get their attention. Um, we have to kind of you know try and cut through that. And you know our, our job uh, our, as as guardians of our children <coughs> is to tr- is to try and f- is to try and help them navigate through life without being brainwashed by the the media the the internet and and uh, you know a lot of the hogwash that 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 circulates in in society and the things that other people are saying to them that that might not be entirely true or you know might be exaggerations or distortions of the truth. And so, in terms of like uh, you know, either we do that just by teaching kids what it means to take a step back and think about things objectively. That's the bottom line, and then in interacting you know w- with our children. I think with my daughter, I try, first of all, I tried to teach her through these stories because I, f- I thought that she found that relatable. And then I tried to teach her, but that takes a bit of research and finding stories that are suitable. And then I tried to teach her through being a role model. You know, uh, I think that's what the Stoics would say fundamentally, is if you want to know how to teach your children, there are things that you could say and do, but the bottom line is that you need to go there first so, you know, one of the things I say to my little girl is if she's she comes home and she'll see all the kids at school are eating candy. And I, I'll say to her, well, you know that I don't give you candy. And she'll say, but I really want candy, Daddy. Like, the other kids get candy. You know, <laughs> how can't I come I can't just have a little bit of candy from the shop and stuff? You know, uh, and I say to her, uh, does your dad eat candy? And she says, no, Why?" <laughs> why? Say so, well if I don't eat it, then neither do you. Uh, and then that's you know that's harder for her to argue with. So I think we have to go there first. Like, And kids will look for ways out of that. They'll look for ways around it or inconsistencies. So yes. you have become the person that you want your child to be. Like, and then you know you you need to role model things to them. It becomes a lot easier. If I was stuffing my face with candy or I was drinking beer or something like, that, she saw me being inconsistent like that. You know, and then I tried to tell her that she needs to eat healthy and avoid bad habits and stuff. She'd think, who is this idiot to tell me what to do? <laughs> like, He's doing the complete opposite. Yeah, like, yeah. it's not, in a way, it's not rocket science, right? Socrates no. makes a big deal out of this as well, is that, you know, you have to be as you wish to appear. Socrates used to say, you know, rather than trying to persuade people, you should focus on becoming the person that you want them to be. And then you're in a stronger position to influence them. It yeah. seems like you're more authentic with them.
1: Yeah, we've talked a lot about it on the podcast before. It's just this whole inconsistency or incongruency with the things we tell our children and the way that we behave ourselves and how you do need to teach children things. But I think that you're exactly right that words words are important, but they need to be backed up by your own or supported by your own behavior. So unfortunately, we haven't got onto temporary madness and anger. We haven't got onto the choice of Hercules and, and then also how our Stoics deal with sickness, which I did a little podcast on. A little while ago, um, on how to remain stoic in sickness, as we know how many us men can are famous for the man flu but um donald man it's been a real pleasure i really as as i said it it could have gone on for ages and hopefully we can we can connect again and then perhaps talk about those things because i think that you said that a lot of people are that you work with it's it's all about depression and things but the stoics are really focused on anger and and i know that in my life that that has been that has been kind of the little stumbling block in in my life to a large extent was this inability to do deal with anger and from reading your book and, and reading some of the other books like by Ryan Holiday of, of Obstacle is the Way and, and actually starting to practice. Because I think that's the point, right? I mean, Stoicism, you can read as many books as you want, but it's really – it's kind of just a way of life. And that's probably why you see such a um, a common thread through a lot of people who weren't m- maybe known as Stoics, but you see a lot of behavior that is Stoic. Yeah. Capital Sto- S. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely
0: Stoicism's for life. It's not just for Christmas. And yeah. they – you know the elephant in the room anger is the elephant in the room because yes. people people who are really angry n- sometimes but generally they don't seek therapy like they when people are really angry they think it's everyone else that needs to have therapy like because it's what we call an externalizing <laughs> emotion so they yeah, they blame yes. other people and yeah. people, people who get anger therapy are often referred by institutions like children in schools might be referred by the school for for help with anger or prisoners in a, in a, in a prison. Uh, might be you know told that they need to to have anger management. Um, or sometimes people get it because their partner in a relationship thinks that they need it. But people who are angry are are often reluctant to to address it, you know, until they reach a kind of a critical point. Whereas people who are anxious or depressed are much more likely to to seek therapy because they blame themselves more than other people. They blame other people. So I think, yes, anger is is a big one. And the internet, if you want to know about anger, go and look at the comments on YouTube. Wow. and uh, I, you know then that's it's like that's so a strange pathology of anger like you know all the trolling and hatred and flaming and stuff it's, it's... i know you wouldn't have thought it exists and then you go and look at the internet wow there's so much hatred like and mm. i like it's, it's it's very interesting the internet is a breeding ground for for hatred um yeah and yeah. it look at like us politics at the moment you know the device. <laughs> good it. you went there <laughs> yeah like it's, all, it's all about the politics of hatred these days yeah, exactly. you know republicans democrats can't even look each other in the face like they can't stand each other like so you know we hatred is corrosive um it destroys it destroys us and it destroys the society that we live in and you know, I think it, it it is something that we need to make an effort to to address, and mm. I, it's something I want to write more about. I just wrote an article about, uh, yeah.
1: about
0: anger yesterday, and uh, I'll read that uh, one for sure. I want to I want to go on and, and focus a little bit more on that in the future.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's exactly what I wanted to kind of end of, and you actually went there into the U.S. politics, was the, I don't know who said it, was either Aristotle or Plato or Socrates, which was the one about, or even maybe Marcus, about if our emperors can become philosophers or, no, if our kings can be philosophers and our philosophers kings, it would make such a massive difference. And and for me, when I look around the world, it's very hard to find a, a Stoic. Um, ruler such as marcus who actually cares about other people and actually wants the best and 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 actually is virtuous himself and i think that it's it's a great thing that stoicism has made the comeback it has um but unfortunately it doesn't seem that certain world leaders have been reading your book so hopefully we can get it out there and some of them could read it and be influenced by it but thanks so much man really appreciate you coming on here so it's been a pleasure thanks very much for having me on so that brings an end to my fascinating discussion with donald robertson if you want to learn more about him and see more of his work go check him out on the web on donaldrobertson.name that's donaldrobertson.name and on facebook you can join the stoicism group which i'm a member of as well also do yourself a favor and get yourself a copy of how to think like a roman emperor really excellent book thanks once again to all of you guys listening thank you very much for your support please do us one favor and that is to share this podcast with as many fathers as you can and remember that all the time energy and hard work that you put into being the man that your family need and deserve is always going to be worth it so be relentless